All right, good morning, everybody. We will be in Romans chapter 1 again this morning. Let's open up with a word of prayer, and we can get into our study. Dearest Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. We give you praise for another opportunity to be in your word, to come together as a body of believers. We thank you, Lord, for this church that you've made us a part of. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with us here today as we, as we worship you, Lord, as we give you praise. Pray, Lord, that you'd be with us as we study um, through our text here this morning in Romans. Just thank you, Lord, for the, the word, the revelation that you've given us, Lord, um, in the gospel. And we pray, Lord, that you would just help us to understand these things, take them to heart, Lord, and, and use them as we uh, share your word with others. Lord, we just pray now that you'd be with us as we look into this first chapter and just uh, glean uh, the truths that you have for us here. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 1, we're blazing our way through this letter, making our way through, however you want to look at it. We've already covered the introduction that Paul has given to this church in Rome, as well as the theme of what he wants to know, he wants them to know, um, which we found in verses 16 through 17 that we looked at last week. And I have my glasses today. So I made sure that Jenny helped me make sure that I had my glasses, my notes, everything. So, After explaining to this Roman church that he has a desire and an obligation to minister to them, he told them in verse 15 that he was eager to come and preach the gospel to them. And then in verses 16 to 17, he told us why he wanted to do this. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And we noted that in these verses, Paul unlocked the truth of the gospel, the message that he stated that he was not ashamed of. And we noted that we should not be ashamed of it either. The question comes up, why? Because it is the power of God for salvation. It's not about the power of God. It doesn't just talk about God's power. The gospel message is the power of God. Without the message of the gospel, no one is saved. Without the message concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to earth to pay the penalty for our sins, there is no salvation. Jesus Christ is the power. The gospel is the message about Jesus Christ and about what he did. We've talked about how you cannot tell the gospel message without talking about Jesus. There is no gospel message without Jesus Christ. Apart from the work that he finished providing salvation to the world, there is no good news of God. But what's also true, and I feel that we sometimes miss is that in talking about Jesus Christ, there is nothing else that we can tell other than his completed work on the cross for salvation. We looked last time at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians about his preaching of the gospel when he was in Corinth. And if you remember, in chapter 2, in the first couple of verses, he said, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He came to the church in Corinth, or he came to these people in Corinth and told them about Jesus Christ. And what did he tell them about Jesus Christ? Him crucified. He didn't come to tell them about how good of a teacher that Jesus was or about how many sick people that Jesus healed. Paul wasn't there to talk to them about how Jesus felt about the government, or about any kind of social justice cause. His message about Jesus Christ was about the work that he accomplished on their behalf on the cross. Just like telling someone a message about God's love without telling them about Christ's work on the cross is empty and void and has no power to save, it's equally true that telling someone about all the good things that Jesus did while he was on earth and then stopping short of telling them about his dying to pay the penalty for sins is also empty and void when it comes to saving them from their sins. I used to work for a hospital system that thought that building hospitals 
would extend the healing ministry of Christ to the world. Christ didn't come to earth in the flesh so that people could build hospitals. He came to die for sins. He came to save the souls of those who would believe in him and in the work that he provided. So the power of God is found in the work of Christ on the cross. That is what provides the power needed for salvation. To everyone who believes, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter who you are. It's the only message that is able to save you from your sins. He stated in verse 17 that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. God's right standard that anyone who is saved needs to measure up to. It's the standard of God, the perfect standard that not a single one of us has any remote possibility of being able to measure up to. But it's what has to happen. And that is only possible through what Christ has done for us. That righteousness of God is only applied to us by faith. That is, um, that is all that it takes. You'd think that something like that would be easy. You'd think the message of the gospel, all you have to do is believe in it. You'd think that would be something that would be easy. But when it comes to those who dwell in sin and darkness, it just doesn't seem to be easy at all. If a simple thing like believing is all that it takes, why isn't everyone saved? There are people out there who are trying to follow lists of things, long lists of things that they feel they need to do every single day in an effort to match up with God's righteousness. That's what Paul did, right? Uh, We saw in Philippians chapter 3, he talked about how having a righteousness of his own derived from the law. Right? That's what he did before he was saved. That's how he lived before he saved. Have you ever read the law of Moses? Those are some impossible things to keep. And keep perfectly. Yet the nation of Israel, that's how they thought they were going to get saved. And that's exactly what Paul was doing. Trying to keep that list of things perfectly every day of his life. But it was never about those things. It was always about faith. It was always about faith alone. Faith not in what we do, but in what God did for us through the work of his son. Why is that so hard? Well, I think that's a question that Paul asked as well. And today, as we start into the rest of chapter 1, starting in verse 18, we're going to see him start to explain why people just don't believe. What keeps them from believing? What keeps them from tapping into the power that God provides through the gospel? So starting in verse 18 of chapter 1, Paul is going to launch into his gospel presentation, and he starts with the problem. What is mankind's problem? Sin. There was some question that came up as I was studying through this section on whether we would say that this is actually part of the gospel message. Is talking about sin part of the gospel message. Sin is the problem. You can't tell someone about salvation without telling them about the problem of their sin. If they don't understand that, then how can they understand what Christ did for them? People often use the analogy of having an illness or sickness of some sort, right? Cancer or a heart condition, take your pick on having some type of sickness that you need treatment for. You go to the doctor. What's the first thing that you have to know before the doctor can treat your problem? You've got to know what your problem is, right? I mean, doctor says, here, you need to take these pills. What are you going to ask? Why? What are they for? Knowing, but you, you can ask yourself, but is knowing that part of the solution, right? If you take the pills... It might cure you of your problem, but you have no idea why you're going to take them. So maybe technically it's not part of the solution, but there sure needs to be that understanding before you'd even consider any type of treatment for it. So from verse 18 of chapter 1 down through verse 20 of chapter 3, it's the problem of sin, man's condition, that needs treatment that Paul is going to be dealing with here. And he's going to start... Here in verse 18, down through the rest of the chapter, down to verse 32, and he's going to be talking about the Gentiles. Or really, he doesn't specifically name them as Gentiles, but really what he's talking about is those who have never had any special revelation from God. Just people out in the world that have never 
heard anything about God. And he's going to contrast that with where he will go when we get to chapter 2, where he will start to talk about those who have had special revelation from God, right? And we'll start to talk then about the Jews. Because those were the people that were given every advantage. They were given the knowledge of God, and yet they still were subject to sin. They still sinned and rejected God. And that will carry his discussion through until we get into chapter 3, down into verse 20. So again, it's, as we study through this book, it's worth noting that Paul builds his argument very meticulously here. He starts with sins of those who didn't know anything about God, didn't know much of anything about God. Then he moves to those who know a bit more about God before he finally gets in chapter, into chapter 3 where, he'll, where he will talk about what God has provided to fix this problem of sin. So we won't even see that until we get into the third chapter. And as we go through, you'll see that this progresses in understanding very logically and meticulously as we move through this book. But right away here in verse 18, as he starts this, he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't sugarcoat anything. He takes us right to the straight truth of the matter and tells us that there is indeed a problem, and that problem revolves around the wrath of God. Oh, we can't start a gospel presentation with the wrath of God. Let's talk about God's love first. Let's talk about living forever. Let's talk about, no, that's not how Paul starts his presentation. Paul starts off by talking about the wrath of God, and that's where you have to start because it's what people must understand if they are ever going to know why it is that they need the righteousness of God. So look with me at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You'll note that this verse starts with the same word for that we talked about in our study last time. Verse 16 started with it as well, and it was used a couple of times um, in those verses. It's that little connecting word. And we could ask the same question that we were asking last week, based on verse 17. Why does the gospel reveal God's righteousness? Why does the righteous man live by faith? And really, what Paul is launching us is, launching us into here is not just an answer to that question in this one single verse, but the next 11 chapters of this letter is going to explain the answer to that question. And he starts with talking about the problem. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. People don't like to start here. But really, it's what people need to know. If you're going to accept a message that deals with putting you into a right relationship with the holy and righteous God, then you have to understand the severity of the problem that keeps you from him. And that includes the fact that God is very angry with people today. This isn't something that means, look at how God dealt with sin in the Old Testament. We can look at that and we can see examples but it's also not something that means, look at what God is going to do someday down the road because of your sin. This that Paul is talking about here is present tense. It means the wrath of God is being continuously revealed. God's wrath is revealed right now. Anyone who sins is currently under the wrath of God. They are in the crosshairs of God. In chapter 2, we'll see that his wrath is being stored up against them. And I think the, people that picture, uh, or the, the picture that people have of the wrath of God is that, is that unbelievers go through their life, they sin, they do whatever they want to do, then at the end of their life, God is going to take a look at a list and they'll say, okay, here's this person, here's their name, oh, oh you did some bad things, okay, this is the judgment that you're going to have. But I don't think that's the picture that Paul is painting here. This is a picture of God looking down in anger, God looking down from heaven with wrath. And as the unbeliever's life goes on, the wrath builds and builds and builds as they continue to sin against God. The third chapter of John's Gospel has one of the most recognizable verses talking about God's love. And we read it last week, and everybody here, I'm sure, could quote it, right? 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We all know that verse. We all love that verse. And that's the picture that we have no issue presenting to people. God loving the world. But that chapter also has this verse. John 3.36, where Jesus says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It abides on him. That means that it remains or stays on him. God's wrath is on those who do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is an angry God. Fallen man and uh, fallen man, fallen women have angered God with sin, and there are consequences for those whom he has ang- who have angered him, those under his wrath. As we go through these first chapters in Romans, we'll see how this is manifest even today. It's not all saved up for a day of judgment. There are consequences for people's sins. And this is why we see throughout Scripture that those who don't believe are perishing. It talks about that as a present tense thing as well. They are perishing even today. So it's important to understand that God is angry. You know, the Bible talks even about God's hatred towards sinners. And we don't like to think about that. We don't like to talk about that. We would rather think that God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. And yes, God does hate the sin. And yes, God does love sinners. But where did the sin come from? It came from the sinner. Mark 7.21 says that it comes out of the heart of men. God's wrath and judgment doesn't come upon just the sin. It comes upon the sinner. The sinner is the source of the sin. The sinner is responsible for the sin. Verses like Psalm 5.5 5 says he hates all who do iniquity. Ecclesiastes 3.8 says there's a time to love and a time to hate. Jeremiah 12.8, he's talking about Israel. He says, my inheritance I have come to hate. And it's due to their sin. You can't separate out the sin from the sinner. If anything, the sinner is more vile than the sin itself because the sinner is what causes the sin. You understand, sin is not something that hangs out out here that affects us or, or um, in, infects us some way, um, that causes us to do something. It's not an f- entity or a force that makes us do things. We sin. That's where sin comes from. If it wasn't for people, there would be no sin. So we can't sugarcoat this. God is extremely angry toward the sins of his creation. And as we continue here, we start to see why it is so unacceptable that mankind rejects God. Look at how he puts it. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Ungodliness and unrighteousness, he says. Some take these words and they want to separate them out and they talk about them as, okay, then godliness means this, unrighteousness means this. But really, these two things go together. This is an unrighteousness that stems from a rejection of God. And the end of the verse explains why. Because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What this means is that we are not dealing with innocent victims here. They are godless and unrighteous, and they suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. They are rejecting God. They are denying things that they ought to know. And we'll see that in just a minute here as we go through this. But the unbeliever is not innocent. They are willfully rebellious against God. This is why God is angry, why God is wrathful against them. This is what the problem is. We tend to think these poor people are just confused. The problem is they just don't know about God. If we just tell them about God, if we tell them lovingly, if we reason with them, we'll show them the error of their ways, then they'll see reason and believe. And I'm not saying we don't talk to them lovingly. But that's not what's going to convince them. The way, the tone of our voice, the way that we talk to them is not what's going to convince them. We looked last time, several verses in 1 Corinthians. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
It's foolishness to Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to Jews. You know what Paul is telling us here? It's not foolishness and a stumbling block because we just haven't explained it well enough. It's foolishness and a stumbling block because they suppress the truth of it. They don't want to know it. They push it away. They're going around with their hands over their ears like, like kids do. Blah, 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 blah. I, I don't want to hear what's going on. That's what's happening. We refer to unbelievers as lost. right? We talk about that all the time. They're lost. And they are lost. That's exactly what they are. But we think of someone who's lost, we tend to think of someone who wants to be found, right? A hiker who's lost out in the woods, you hear about that on the news, a hiker that's lost out in the woods, you expect that person to be out there trying to find his way back. These that we're talking about here, they're lost, but they aren't out searching for God. They are willfully lost. And they are running deeper into the woods, hiding under trees and rocks as far away from God as they possibly can. Their natural instinct, when they hear the search party that's bringing rescue and salvation, those bringing the gospel message, their instinct is to hide away from it and pretend they don't hear it. As Paul puts it here, they are suppressing what is true. Suppressing what they know to be true. We might ask, how can this be? Right? We might say, well, they're unbelievers. That means that they don't know God. Right? How can they be suppressing truth if they don't know God? Well, that's not what it means. Look at, what, look at verse 19. Paul says here, because that which is known about God is evident within them, and God, for God made it evident to them. God has made himself known. To who? To everyone. This is everyone we're talking about here. Even the unbeliever, even the Gentile, even those men and women who have never touched a Bible, never heard of the Bible. When we talk about those who are lost, who are in need of salvation, the argument that always comes up, what, part, or what about those living in a part of the world where they've never heard about God, where they don't even know about God? A remote tribe of people living in a jungle somewhere on the planet, right? What about them? What about those people? Well, that's exactly Paul's point here. There is no one anywhere on the planet that doesn't know about God. How? God made it evident to them. He has revealed himself to them. How can God be angry? How can he be full of wrath against people who are ungodly, who are unrighteous, if they don't know anything about God? He can't, but the reason is because there's no one who doesn't know anything about God. Because God has made himself evident to everyone. Now, in what way did he do that? Well, look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Ever since the very beginning of creation, from the very beginning of Genesis, God has been revealed in what has been made. He made it all. It was all designed, created, came into being by the work of his hands. You look around you. You see the sunrise. You see the sunset. You see the mountains. You see the trees. You see the jungles. You see whatever. Right? We've all been on those trips somewhere where we've been in the woods or we've been to the mountains or we've been to you know, a tropical island like Hawaii or something like that. And we've all seen the handiwork of God. All around us, the power of God is evident in everything that has been made. What we're talking about here, this is a general revelation of God. A revelation of God that everyone can see, and that everyone does see. It's not every fact. It's not perfect theology about God. We have his word for the theology that we need to know, right? Because he's provided that too, but we'll talk about that at a later time. But God has revealed himself to the world in what he has done and in what he does every day. He brings the rain Every day, the snow, he brings the wind, he causes the sun to shine, he causes the stars and the moon to show up 
at night. He put them there. He made them all. Generally speaking, everyone can see that and everyone knows that. Now we might ask, well, what about atheists? What about those who say, I don't believe in God or there is no God? What about them? They don't really exist. That goes back to Paul's statement in verse 18, men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They say there is no God. They will fight you tooth and nail to make that claim, but even they know that that's not really true. It's a truth that they suppress. They suppress it very well. Have you ever noticed how someone who claims that there is no God, claims that they don't believe in God, claims that there's no such thing as God, spends so much time talking about the God that they claim they don't believe exists? I don't believe in unicorns. I just don't believe that they're real. Maybe you disagree with me. Maybe you're on the same page with me. I don't know. But they are creatures that I don't believe exist. As an awe unicornist, I don't spend very much time thinking about or worrying about unicorns. I don't create Facebook pages and posts that detail my arguments against unicornology. I don't get angry with those that might believe in a unicorn. Or maybe if someone wants to put a picture of a unicorn up in a school, or maybe put a unicorn poem on the wall of a public building, that doesn't concern me. I don't really care about that. Why? Because unicorns aren't real, and I know that they aren't real, and I don't give them any consideration. But people that claim to be atheists who say they don't believe in God, yet they care a lot if something about God is mentioned, if something about God is posted somewhere or made public somewhere. They care a lot if someone disagrees with them and claims to believe in God and dares try to share that faith in God with them. Why? Why would they care so much about him if they don't even believe that he exists? Because unlike with unicorns, they know that there really is something to God. They even know from creation around them that, that God exists. Turn with Mac with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 8. We'll look at a couple of, couple of psalms together here. David says this in Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. He starts off with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And then if you look down at verse 3, he talks about that display. He says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You see, David's response to the things that he has seen, looking out at the expanse of the sky, the stars, the moons, things in the heavens, what do they show? They show the splendor and the magnificence of God. Compared to all that, seeing a God who is capable of all of that, how does man compare to him? He doesn't, and that's what David realizes here. Now, in a bit, in Romans chapter 1, we'll see that the unbelieving world comes to a much different conclusion than David did on that. And we'll talk about why. But David here shows the correct conclusion. Flip over a few pages to Psalm 19. We'll just look at one more. We'll see what David says here in Psalm 19. He says in verse 1, Psalm 19... The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. The creation tells of God's handiwork. David says that it tells it without words to the ends of the earth. But it speaks volumes in what is seen. Day and night, the magnificence of the creation tells of God. You can go out during the day and you can see the splendor of God's creation. You go out at night and you see the splendor of God's creation. 
That's what Paul is talking about. Just look around you. Look at the majesty of the creation. You know that God exists. You do. Whether you say that you do or not, you know that he exists. People claim that it's not God that created the world. And they say that they know that because of science. They say, oh, we have science and we can look at all these things now and we can, we can have explanations for these things. I think science shows just exactly the opposite of that. You know what science really shows us? It shows us organisms and structures of life that are so complex and so organized that the deeper and deeper we get into them, the more absurd it is to think that there was no design to it. To think that there was no one, no God that had any type of hand in it, they would rather suppress any type of reason, any type of truth that is evident. And they would rather say, all these things that are so complex, and so it just happened. It just happened. I have a challenge for anyone that wants to take this up today. They're selling fireworks for the next few days, right? I think, I think we've all heard that, right? Everybody knows that there's fireworks going on. I want anybody that wants to take up this challenge, go out and buy a pack of firecrackers. You might need more than one, just to warn you. But buy a pack of firecrackers and start lighting them off one at a time, one by one. And you let me know when you've created something. When something pops into existence from one of those explosions, I want you to keep lighting off firecrackers until something has been created. And I don't mean say, oh, I created a pile of burned scraps of papers. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a watch or a trumpet or a butterfly. And if you make a unicorn, I really want to know about that. <laughs> but this is ridiculous, of course, right? It's absurd. It's not going to happen. Why? Because a firecracker going off isn't going to create anything, and everyone knows that it won't happen. To create something, someone has to build it. And the more complex that that something is, the more design must have gone into it. But instead, the fallen world, those who refuse to believe in God, would rather have us believe that that's exactly the way it works. Boom! A big bang, and it just all happened to fall into place. Everything that we see around us here today just happened. Some of these things are so ridiculous. I mean, I, I really don't mean to make light of these things. I don't because it's sad, really. It's a very sad state. They know God. They know that he exists. They simply refuse to accept him. You know what I look out for when I hear people talk about things? I look out for how many people, how many times I see people who say they don't believe in God. They say, oh, there's no God. There's no, I mean, obviously it's ridiculous to say that there's God. But I look out for those people and I see, I want to know how many times they use phrases like, well, nature or mother nature did this. Or fate handed out something today. Or the universe has determined something. Because they won't admit that there's a God, but they will use these other names and other terms. Mother nature, fate, the universe, whatever. What are they doing? They're attributing things that happen in life to something that they don't understand that's greater than themselves. Something out there that thinks and reasons and causes something to concern, uh, to occur. It's like they want to say, it's almost as if something is directing this. It can't be God. I know it's not God. There's no way it's God. But it's like something else, anything else. But God, no, it can't be God. What is that? They are acknowledging the existence of God, acknowledging at least a general knowledge of at least the idea of God, but refusing to accept that it's God that they're really acknowledging. Now again, we're talking about a very general knowledge. It's not specific, and it's certainly not a saving knowledge. But they show that they at least have an understanding that God is out there. And that's what Paul is talking about here. And he says at the very end of verse 20, so that they are without excuse. They know his existence is clear. The creation shows God to even the most godless of men. And what does that mean for them? They're without excuse. Again, this is going back to Paul's initial claim in verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against them. 
You can't say, oh, but they lived in this remote part of the world where no missionary has ever gone. They can't be under God's wrath. They didn't know God. Yes. Yes, they did. Even they are without excuse. There is no excuse for not understanding that God exists. Exists. This knowledge that we're talking about here, it's not enough knowledge to save them, but it is enough knowledge to condemn them. We come to verse 21. He continues on with this. He elaborates on how they suppress the truth, some of the things that they do. He says here, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You see what he says? They knew God. And this is an interesting word choice that Paul uses here because this word is usually used to talk about having a deep knowledge, a deep understanding, almost like an intimate knowledge of God. He is stressing that they know much more than they really let on. It's not even really just a cursory knowledge. They knew God. Through what was revealed, they should have known better. But instead, they rejected what was right in front of them. And they they do that continually today. He mentions a few things here. He says they did not honor him as God. To God and God alone belongs all glory. That's how Paul will actually end this long doctrinal explanation of the gospel when we get to the very end of chapter 11 in verse 36 where he'll say, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. By the time we get to the end of of Paul's gospel presentation, we'll see their folly for not giving glory to God. But also here he says that they did not give him thanks. And this goes right along with not honoring him. The blessings of God rain down literally on every man, woman, and child on this planet. They always have. And yet it is only a few who actually give thanks to God for that. The love that he shows the world through the gospel is the greatest thing that he could ever do for them, that he ever did for us. And the majority of people throw it right back in his face. The writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10 that the one who hears the gospel and rejects it and goes on sinning willfully tramples underfoot the Son of God, regards the blood of his covenant as unclean, insults the Spirit of grace. For most of the world, that's all the thanks that God will ever get from them. None. No thanks at all. Just an insult. They do not honor him. They do not give thanks to him. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart, it says, was darkened. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are not compatible. I hope we understand that. They do not mix. What the world says is wise, God doesn't see as wise at all. And what God says is wise, the world doesn't see as wise. They don't mix, and we can't spend our time trying to mix them. And unfortunately, sometimes that's what we do. If you remember last week, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, more than once, what did we see there? The gospel is foolishness to the world. Those that are perishing see it as a foolish message. Now here, we see why. Because they are foolish themselves. This is from God's perspective, of course, which would be the correct perspective. In their speculations, they became futile. This word means worthless. Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians again. We'll make our way to the third chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul spends time talking to the Corinthians about foolishness and wisdom and things like that. The city of Corinth was right in that hotbed of Greek culture. There were many learned people all around them that thought themselves to be wise, right? That was kind of the Greek thing. Thought that they had all of the answers. So as a church, they had to continually combat that. And I'd say that we're in that same battle in our culture today. But look down at verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 3. Where it says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he he may become wise. Now we've already gone through the foolishness of God and wisdom of man talk in this letter. So 
Paul is saying here, if you think that you're wise because you have a worldly wisdom, if you think that you're wise because you're wise in the eyes of the world, then with respect to that thinking, you're going to have to become foolish to the world in order to truly become wise. That's seeing wisdom from God's perspective, true wisdom, biblical wisdom. And he continues on with that in verse 19 where he says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, for it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. The word useless at the end of verse 20 is our word futile in Romans 1.21. In other words, the wisdom that the world comes up with is worthless. It's not grounded in the word. It's not from God. It's what man who rejects God and says, hmm, I must be able to figure this out for myself. Come up with this all on my own. God tells us how he created the world, right? I I can read it. You can read it. We can all read it. We know how God created the world. Man says it must have been an explosion that occurred billions of years ago that just happened to bring this about. We don't know all the details of it, but that must be it. That's what we use to explain that. God tells us what's sinful. Man says, I don't see anything wrong with doing that, as long as you like it. God tells us that we stand condemned before him, that we stand subject to his wrath. Man says, I don't think there's anything wrong with the path that I'm on. God tells us that he made people male and female. Man now tells us there's no way to tell who a man or a woman is. You see the pattern here. Mankind fights God, opposes him, and tries to change everything that he says is true. Man takes what God says and comes up with his own reasonings, and God says those reasonings are useless, worthless, they're futile. Back in Romans 1, they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened, he says. They fall deeper and deeper into their own wisdom, what they say is wisdom, but is really foolishness. They have a foolish heart, their innermost being, and it's darkened. They become convinced of their own lies that they tell themselves. They tell themselves these things over and over and over again. They don't even consider anything else, and this is where their heart rests, where it goes. They spend their lives with their own ideas, theories, wisdom, apart from God. And over time, there isn't anything else that they think of or consider. They believe nothing else. You know how the world approaches wisdom, what they think to truly be wise, anything that doesn't include God. God can't be the answer. Anything else could be the answer except God. They dance around the truth. You've got the truth of God right in the middle. I mean, the truth of God is the center of everything. And it's right there. But they blank that out. They put a, put a blanket over that and say, that can't be it. Okay, so now let's find truth. Let's find what's true. They've got the truth right there. But it involves God. So that can't be the truth. They have to cut him out and find wisdom without him. How do you do that? You can't. It would be like if somebody were to tell me, I want you to tell me what your first name is, but I don't believe in the name Matt. So don't, you can't use that word, but tell me what your name is. How can I do that? I can't do that. That's my name, right? I, I, you tell me to take out the answer that you're asking for, I can't give you an answer. So what do I, I have to lie. I'm Bob or I'm Paul or something, right? I have to lie, and that's exactly what they do. God is wisdom. God is the answer. If you leave out God and say, go find the answer, you can't find the answer. It's ridiculous, but that's the entire point. There is no way to know true wisdom without God, and yet that's what they're trying to do. Christians think that in order to get people to know the gospel, we have to reason with them. We have to play on their level. We have to try to come up with some type of wise argument that will convince them. You have people that are dedicated to coming up with all kinds of logical arguments for things like creation, the nature of God, the things that we're talking about here. 
But you see, this is why that doesn't work. Because the wisdom of man is foolishness, and they give themselves completely over to this foolishness. We don't need to find just the right argument to convince right argument to convince them that God exists because they already know that he exists. They just suppress what they know. I don't know, Matt, I have a, a friend who's pretty adamant that there's no God. I think I need to find some way to convince him. No, I know he might sound pretty convincing, but Paul's pretty convincing here too. Verse 19, God made it evident to him. Verse 20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen through what has been made. Show him the sky, show him a forest, mountains, a thunderstorm. God exists and he knows it. That person who says that he doesn't believe that he exists just doesn't want to admit that he stands accountable before him. He is suppressing the truth of that in his unrighteousness. I don't stand up here and get political, but I don't think this is really a political issue. This is a moral issue, a common decency issue. I've seen so many people over the last week try to justify why people should continue to be allowed to murder children in the womb with the arguments that come up there right along with the lines of what we're seeing here. I even saw one that made me so sick to my stomach this week. It was hard for me to get over it. And you can tell I'm, I'm, not, I'm still not over it because I'm bringing it up here. About whether even killing a child in the womb was, was even the issue. They said that it was really a red herring argument about killing the child. They said it didn't matter if it was in a child in the womb or a five-year-old or a, or a 50-year-old person. How can the murder of an innocent baby not be the real issue? How can that not, at the very least, be a valid part of the argument? Their foolish hearts are darkened. That's how. To admit that murdering babies in the womb is a problem is to admit that the God of all creation might have something to say about that, might be angered about that. Admitting to any sin, really, same issue. That just so happens to be the topic that's out there right now. But it's so obvious to us that it's frustrating at times that they don't get it. They don't understand because they refuse to understand it. They refuse to acknowledge God. Okay, he goes on in verse 22. He just says they're professing to be wise, they became fools. Here's that transition between God and man, between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. In their minds, they are wise. But really, what are they? They're fools, he says. When I was in college, there was a class that some of my friends took. I didn't take the class. I didn't see the point in it. But it was a class at University of Nebraska about Christianity. I say about Christianity. Um, I don't remember the name of it. It was a few years ago. But I remember from the... Uh, it was a few years ago that I was at the university. <laughs> Slipped that in. But I remember from hearing about this class, that their, from their description of it, that it was taught by someone who's not, obviously not a Christian, but he was trying to give, I think what he would consider in his mind, an unbiased, detailed look of Christianity. And basically, he spent the entire semester tearing apart many of the truths that we find in Scripture regarding what Christianity is. Of course, this was all done in the name of higher learning, academia, right? He's a college professor giving out all this great truth. And so his findings must carry weight. If a university professor says something isn't so, it must not be so, right? When I read this verse, I always think of that class, that man in that class, professing to be wise, carrying themselves to have all the wisdom in the world, proclaiming that they have all of the answers. And to the world, all those who are still lost, who are also suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, people like that do have all the answers, right? At least in their minds. Oh, he explained it so well. I, he helped me figure out things that I've always questioned, that I've always wondered about. Oh, he explained it so clearly. What's God's opinion of it? How does, how does God think he handled it? They became fools, is what he says. This man in the college class, sad thing is, he knew the Bible. He knew God's word backwards and forwards. Of course, in his class, there would be many... Uh, college students who came in, and keep in mind, probably half of the students that, that were in, in his class in any given semester were Christian kids. 
Kids that had, in their mind, were taking the class because they thought, I'm going to be the one that finally give this guy an argument that he can't answer, that, that will show him that he's wrong. But that was folly. Why? Because this guy had been dealing this out for a long time, and he knew the details of God's words, and he knew the arguments that they were going to come up with. He knew the truth. He was suppressing it. He didn't want to know. He didn't want to acknowledge it. Having that kind of knowledge of the Word of God and using it simply as a means to tear it apart and discredit it, to take what God had revealed clearly. And keep in mind, when we're talking about the Bible, when we're talking about a man like that, we're, we're going even beyond what Paul is getting at here in Romans 1. This is general revelation. The Bible is specific revelation, detailed revelation. We'll, we'll get to talking about people like that when we get into chapter 2. But this professor was a fool in the strictest sense of the word. Paul here is talking about those who look at creation and dismiss God, coming up with other explanations for it. But we know that it goes even beyond that. People take the word of God and reject it. And like I said, we'll get into that when we get into the next chapter. So we come to verse 23. And we see here where this takes them. What this leads them to reason in their own foolish minds. It says, and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Ultimately, what does man do? He takes the glory that belongs to God and he transfers it to something that is corruptible. The incorruptible God to corruptible something. Really, he transfers it to something that he can control. And this is really what happens, what it's all about. If there is an all-powerful creator to which I owe my existence, then I have to admit that I'm not the one in charge. I'm not the one in control of my own destiny. That's really what it boils down to. We are answerable to God, and fallen man does not want to admit that. So he gives glory to something of his own making. This is the essence of every religion, of every belief system outside of the Bible. For all of history, people have been doing what? Creating their own gods, their own idols, images in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Most gods that people create, right, they create these little idols. They use animal imagery to represent them. Sometimes they use people. Sometimes they're celestial beings, sun, moon, stars. But they all end up being flawed in some way. They can be fooled or tricked. They fail at things. They're not perfect, right? You read some stories, mythologies from other religions, and you, you, you see these gods, and you think, these are idiots that they present. Why? Because then the men that create them are the ones in control of them, right? They have made them in their own image. What is actually true? We were made in the image of God, right? But fallen man makes gods in the image of himself. What does that make him? Now he's God, right? Fallen man is his own God. Prophet Jeremiah wrote about that. Turn with me over to Jeremiah 10. This is the last place we'll look. Jeremiah chapter 10. God is warning the nation of Israel, about the folly of following the nations into idolatry. Which, if you recall from Israel's history, they did over and over and over again. But look at verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 10. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations, and do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the peoples are delusion, because it is wood cut from the forest, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. What are these? Right? He's talking about these are the gods that they make, right? They might, they might be pretty. They might spend a lot of time and a lot of craftsmanship making beautiful idols, but 
that's all they are. They're wood, stone, gold, just things. They have to be carried around. They nail them up so they don't fall over. My God might fall over, so I have to nail him up, right? He can't go anywhere, so I have to carry him. In some places, even today, they have, people have little idols in their homes, little figures that they put in places of honor. They don't do anything. They can't do anything. But our God isn't like that. Verse 6, he says, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. And then he doesn't pull any punches when he gets to verse 8. He's like Paul. But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. Skip down to verse 14. We see the same thing. He says there, Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment they will perish. We see God's opinion here, right? What are they doing? They are showing their foolishness by making idols of images that can't do anything. But what is at the heart of the matter? The heart of the matter is that they refuse to believe in the one true God. We need to be careful when we, when we talk about people that are lost. This isn't, oh, these poor people that just don't know any better. That's not what we're seeing here. That's not the picture that Paul is painting here. The unbelieving world are under the wrath of God, not for what they don't understand, but for what they do understand and refuse to acknowledge. That's true in the pagan world uh, in Paul's day. It was true in the pagan world in Jeremiah's day. It's true in the pagan world in our day. And by pagan world, I don't just mean that you have to go to the remote jungles somewhere to find that, South America, Africa, wherever. I mean the world that puts any idol over and above God, which they do every day. You can put possessions up as your idol. You can put people up as your idol. You can put yourself up as your idol. You can put science up as your idol. Anything that you put up that is more important than God, that's their idol. We need to be careful that this is true of the fallen world, but we need to understand that we were right there with them when, before we were saved. Right? And we're talking about unbelievers. So we're talking strictly about unbelievers. Paul hasn't talked about salvation yet. Right? That's, again, meticulous message he's taking us through. That won't come for till we get to like chapter 3. So he's talking about the fallen. But before we were saved, before we were saved by the power of the gospel, we weren't any different than this. We're not talking about, oh, we're so much better than them. because No, this is what was true of us. We were foolish. We were rejecting what was right in front of our eyes for a period of time. But what's the difference? Back in verse 16, the power of God for salvation, the gospel, the understanding that we have now, we owe to the power of God working in our lives to give us that understanding, to bring the power of the gospel to bear in our lives. We didn't just suddenly become smarter or more wise enough to accept this. That didn't happen because of us. It was the Holy Spirit that made known to us the gospel message. That's why we don't spend our time trying to convince the world that God exists. They know he exists. We spend our time telling them that they are in this lost condition under God's wrath, but that he has provided them a way out of that condition. Sent his son to die on the cross for their sins. Paid the penalty uh, provided the payment for the penalty that they owed and rose again to new life, thus making it possible for them to believe, place their faith in what he did for them on the cross and have everlasting life with him in glory. That's the message that we preach, and that's the only message that saves. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that it contains. 
Lord, we thank you for the power that it is to save people. And we know, Lord, that that is the message that people need to hear. And we pray, Lord, that we would be bold in sharing that with others. We know, Lord, that, that the world suppresses um, knowledge of you. We just pray, Lord, that we would understand that as we talk to them, as we communicate them, Lord. We pray that our, our speech and our language and our, the things that we talk about would center around the gospel, center around the, the work that you did on the cross. And Lord, we just praise you for that, and we thank you for making that known to us. And we pray, Lord, that as we continue to study through here, that, that you would be honored and that we would just have a greater understanding into the truths behind your word. Pray, Lord, now that you be with us as we go into the next hour. Pray for Josh as he brings us the word, and we pray, Lord, that we would understand even more about the truth that you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.